All right, we are finishing. Oh, if you, if you don't know who I am, I'm Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the pastor of Plus Size Modeling and Interpretive Dance. So if you don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Now I'm an ugly dude, but listen. It's a lot of ugly dudes in here not married, and I give you hope. Listen. If I can get married, you can get married. So I give you hope. Ugly dudes, stand up. No shame. Listen, if you need to learn how to, I can give you some game. You can make a woman laugh. You can trick her all the way to the altar. She'll laugh. It takes work, but you can work on your material. All right, so we are finishing today. This is the final message on forgiveness. We have been in a series on bitterness where the last three messages, this being the third is, is about forgiveness. So we did four messages on bitterness, which I think is, is, is a pandemic in the life of the church, and particularly professing believers. We already see that in the world, from cancel culture to a number of different things. Well, today is, is the finality of this, the, the end of the whole series, but particularly the last of the messages on forgiveness. And I want to make sure that you that you understand what this series was meant for and what even this particular sermon is intended to do. Not, not all sermons are intended for you to just get everything in the moment, right? Not all sermons are intended, or even a sermon series often is more of a resource, right? So there are times when you hear, it's like, man, that's a lot of information. It's not that the pastor wants to just bombard you with a bunch of different ideas, but to give you a resource to go back to. I mean, God left us a resource in his word, right? We continually read something that was written three, two, three, four, five thousand years ago. So there's a, it's a resource. This series is a resource on bitterness. And it's, the titles on the website are important. So if you need to go back and be like, man, I can't remember what he said there. You can go back and check on those. This is a resource. And today's message will be a resource as well. There's going to be a lot of information that I want to communicate because it is the last on this series, but it's an important message nonetheless. The, the concept is important nonetheless. And so what I want to do is just, this is a resource. So it's going to be a lot of information. You don't have to get everything. You don't have to, whatever you miss, it's a resource you can go back and grab later. All right, by God's grace, we do have a website where our, our sermons are posted there almost immediately after the service is over. Now, as we are ending forgiveness, this particular, we did forgiveness to us from God two weeks ago. We did forgiveness from us last week, the responsibility of us to forgive. Today, we conclude with forgiveness in us. How do we grow in the concept of forgiveness? Now, when you think of forgiveness in a Christian, you think, duh, but then if it's so duh, then why is bitterness such a functional reality in the church? All of us, myself included, I have failed miserably at times in my marriage or in other situations because of bitterness. Bitterness is the opposite of forgiveness. And so when we talk about forgiveness, it's important to not just think of it as, yeah, I know that. It's not do you know it, it's do you do it. Do we forgive others? And it's easy when it's someone that just drives by in a car that we never see again, right? 
it's much harder to forgive the person who you live with who sins against you consistently. The family member that you see semi-regularly, the co-worker, the boss, the trash and recycling people who take your stuff and dump it in the trash and if they miss something, they don't pick it back up and then throw your trash can down and you got to go down and, and pick it up and then put it back up and that's their job. I'm bitter at that as you can see. I'm getting, I'm getting tired of these folks. Pray for me. There are three things this is what we're going to do today. I'm going to give you three scenes. We're going to get three scenes in the scriptures, beginning in Matthew 16. Three scenes that we must believe to grow in forgiveness. And then I'm going to give just brief practical things. These are three sort of big picture ideas that we must believe to grow in our ability to extend forgiveness to other people. I'm reading from the CSB translation, Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, and I quote, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he gave his disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Great, great job, Peter. Amazing. You were the Messiah. Peter almost, the way it reads, Peter almost said it like, like, why are you asking that? You're the Messiah, right? It was a matter of fact. But God, Jesus said, look, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Right? God did. Amazing. Great job, Peter. But the verses keep going. Verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord. This will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Now, let's just, let's just zoom out for a second. Prior to this moment, Jesus just told Peter that the Father revealed this to you, right? That you've answered correctly. The Father revealed this to you, so the Spirit is with, with you. It has revealed to you who I am. Great job. And then, after Jesus says, I need to be killed, and then rise on the third day, Peter, who obviously loves Jesus, 
who just is trying to protect his friend and Lord says, no, 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 Lord, don't talk like that. You know how, I don't know if you do this. My mom sometimes will talk to me like, hey, I got this in order when I, you, got, you, can, you guys have this, you and your brother, I'm leaving this. I'm like, mom, I ain't trying. Don't talk to me about that. I know you gotta, you're going to go with the Lord one day, but I don't want to talk about that. No, you don't want to hear your parents talk like that. It's like kids don't want to see their parents be intimate. I always mess with my, my kids. Boys, guess what? They're like, ew, dad. I don't want to hear my mom tell me that. I care. I love my mom. I don't want to think about, oh, okay, oh, oh, I mean, there may be some people like, oh, when you going to die? There's always that, but it's not for me. I don't want to hear that. So here Peter is, Lord, no, 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 don't say that. That's not going to happen to you. And Jesus, who just said, the Spirit revealed to you who I am, that upon this rock, your confession, I'm going to build the church, and I'm going to give you power to bind and loose on earth and in heaven, that same Peter, in the previous scene, he just said, get behind me, Satan. And here's why. Because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. So if it is satanic for Peter to even think differently than what God has commanded, how evil is it to then not forgive as God commanded? How satanic is it then to remain bitter at people? If it's, if it's, just, if it's satanic just because Peter thought something different than what God said must happen, then how satanic is it for us to hold on to bitterness towards other people? If, if my thinking is satanic, then what are my actions? How evil are those? How demonic is it then? I mean, Peter was just saying, Lord, I, he honestly probably just didn't want to hear his friend talk about you going to die. And Jesus said, that is satanic. So from God's perspective, even thinking about something that is not the will of God is satanic. That's how sinful sin is. Is even when you think opposite the will of God, from his perspective, it's not, hey, Peter, come on, man, I know you love me, I know you mean well. No. In Mark's version of this same story, it said Jesus looked at all the disciples as Peter rebuked them. It didn't say Jesus was offended that Peter rebuked them at all. You know how we'll get offended if somebody corrects us, right? It's not what it said. It just said he looked at all the disciples and he used it as a teaching moment. Now, we, there's no indication that Satan entered Peter. That's not the point. The point is when you think differently than what God has commanded, it is satanic. It's demonic. So how evil is it to not forgive as God commanded? Listen to what he's saying to Peter. You are Satan. You are imitating Satan, disagreeing with what God said. When we do not forgive others for their sins against us, we are imitating Satan. This is an important thing to remember. 
a couple of weeks ago, we and, we and one of my buddies, a member of the church, we sat in the room over there and we were talking, and he made a point. And I had thought a similar point like this, but he said it better than I could. And he just said, you know, I think I've grown desensitized to the word sin. He said, as a Christian, because I think of sin and then grace and forgiveness, he said, I've grown desensitized to that. And I said, bro, you know what? I thought along similar lines. Remember that? I thought along similar lines. And then we spent about 30 minutes <laughs> flushing that out. And when he said that, what struck me is, I think it's not just him who is desensitized right. to the word sin and the significance of it. I don't think it's just him. I, I can relate to that. And I said, you know what, man? I told Mike this. I said, you know what, bro? I might take a season away from describing, just calling it sin and calling it satanic and putting it in its proper context. Because when it's not in its proper context, then I can find ways to minimize the reality of it. I don't think of my bitterness or I don't think of it as satanic. I just think of it as I'm struggling. I don't think of it as evil or demonic as it really is. I just think of it as it's a process. I don't take it to the Lord on that level. It's satanic, it's demonic to even think differently. What is, how evil then is unforgiveness and bitterness? I think it's quite possible that we can have a dismissive, a desensitized view of the word sin. And so we can be dismissive of the consequences of sin. We don't realize how serious it is. So when consequences come, it's like, whoa, what's the problem? We're up here like Heath Leather the Joker. Why so serious? No, it's serious because it's satanic. Because if I have a, 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 a satanic view of sin, then I have a satanic view of grace. If I minimize sin, then I may maximize grace and make it just be like, sure, does God forgive our sin? Absolutely. Is there grace for us to grow in the process? Absolutely. But if that's so tangible and so real, then why do so many people walk away from the faith? We have to train our thinking and remind ourselves what's really going on here. When Paul said in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, he meant it. There's spiritual warfare happening all the time. And anytime that we are holding on to bitterness or holding on to how people offended us, even though we accept God's forgiveness. I said this jokingly a couple of weeks ago. I've never sat in front of someone who was offended that God has forgiven them for their sin. But I sit in front of people and I myself have been offended that I got to forgive others for theirs. We may struggle with what God allows to happen, but most of us don't struggle with the fact that we're forgiven and going to heaven on the strength of what Jesus did. It is satanic. And it's one of the reasons why I think Jesus says in Matthew 6, when he's teaching them how to pray, he says this in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, for if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive you your offenses. Because he knows that, that is satanic behavior. If the foundation of our relationship 
with God is forgiveness, then it has to be foundational in our relationship to others. It's not enough to just believe. James 2.19, he said, you believe that God is one? Good. The demons also believe and are afraid. It's not impressive to know and intellectually agree with the gospel and out of all the religions, you believe in Christ more than anything else. That's not impressive because demons believe. Even they fear God on some level. When Jesus walked up, they would constantly be like, son of man, have you come to torment us before the time? If our thinking differently about God's will is satanic, then how evil is it to remain bitter? Withhold forgiveness from someone. We may need to readjust and put our sin in its proper context. That it is satanic and it's demonic. And while grace is amazing, grace does not extend to those who profess to believe but do not forgive others. It doesn't extend that far. His own word says you won't be forgiven. The second thing that we must believe, one, we must believe how serious sin is. It's satanic. Unforgiveness is satanic. Bitterness is satanic. If thinking it is evil, then man, doing it must be worse. The second thing that we must believe, 2 Timothy 3. I'm going to read a list of things. There's something about this passage that I want to explain. I've read this passage for a long time of Paul just describing culture, secular culture. And then, then you realize, wait a minute, well, this stuff isn't unique to like after Paul's life. This was happening while Paul was alive. So he's talking about a different group of people. Paul is listing out believers. He's talking about believers in 2 Timothy 3, and there are two phrases that he says that I want us to look at. He says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, and I quote, But know this, hard times will come in the last days, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers without self-control, brutal without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness but denying its power, avoid these people. For among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women overwhelmed by sins and led away by, their, by a variety of passions, always learning and never, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So here is a list of things that he says will come in the last days, but these things were prevalent in his day. Paul's talking about there will be people who believe that will all of a sudden these attributes will become more prevalent in them. That's why mixed in all this stuff that just seems like what anyone does is like lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Well, non-Christians don't love God anyway. So he's not talking about people who love God. No, he's talking about people who profess to love God but love pleasure more, love, love these different things more. They'll become irreconcilable, meaning unwilling to forgive. But there's two phrases in here that are very important that I want us to zoom in on. I don't want us to be any of these, right? I don't want any of us to be in any on this list. But I want to give special attention to verse 5 and verse 7. Holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. 
He's talking about people who profess to believe in Jesus but have no power at all. They deny, not just they don't have it, they deny the power. In other words, they do the church stuff. They come to church, may even come to D group, but when it comes to actually obeying God, they deny the power that comes with it. They deny it. Here's what a commentary says about verse 5. Commentary series that I, I love. He says this. In verse 5, the apostle examines, but more exactly, the religious situation. Religion is not entirely denied, but it amounts to no more than an empty shell. There is an outward form of godliness, but no power. Indeed, it is not simply a matter of an organized religion which has ceased to function, but a religion which is not intended to function. Its adherents are denying its power, which suggests a positive rejection of its effectiveness. In other words, this just doesn't work. Doesn't work. Perseverance is, is such a beautiful word. I'm so glad that the Lord put it in his Bible because that reminds us that this is not like the, the Bible and verses. They're not, they're not like take two of these and call me in the morning, right? They're not like medicine that, okay, once I read this, I stop being tempted. Like it just doesn't work like that. It's like, no, these tell me what's happening. These tell me what to think and believe in my temptation so that I don't give in to the action. But it never says it takes them away. Not fully. Because says these people deny the effectiveness. They deny the perseverance, the work of growth. He says they have no conception of the gospel as a regenerating force, which means they don't believe that you actually change. So you come to church week after week or you switch churches and you just do all that and you just sit there and just evaluate everything about and as if you're just passing the time. But time is actually taking advantage of you. Yeah. And he's just, he's just letting it go by, go by, go by. Your heart just becomes harder and harder and harder. You know, the thief on the cross was, was a story about God's mercy even to the point of impending death. But it's not the normal way we should think about being a Christian. You don't know if you're going to have enough time on your deathbed to make a profession of faith in Christ. That's not normally how it happens. That scene was describing the grace and the mercy of God to allow someone to get into the kingdom hours before they die. But that's not the normal way we come to conversion. We persevere. He says, it is clear that moral decadence can hardly be expected to pay more than the most superficial lift service to piety and then only maintain a cloak of respectability. Why is this important for us? Because forgiveness is an ethical command of Jesus. Forgiveness is a form of godliness. To not forgive is to deny the power of the Spirit working in us. Now be clear, the Spirit doesn't just zap you and make you just, it's not like somebody sins against you, no big deal, bro. We're good. No, you can do it again next week, I'm good. That's not what the Spirit does. 
listen, in, 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 in the church, in the church, we have to remember this. We are going to sin against each other. We are going to sin against each other. Listen, the spirit moved in, but Adam didn't move out. Right? So Adam is still in us, that old man. The ability to sin, to define good and evil on your own terms still exists. The spirit moved in, and now we got a different roommate. I like this roommate better than this roommate. I want to kick him out, but I can't. Not yet, at least. But I don't have to listen to him. We're going to sin against each other. And the reason why this is important, because more Christian relationships break down, because there's an assumption that because we're both believers, we shouldn't sin against each other, and we're not going to. And then when we do, all of a sudden, it's like, oh my gosh. Like, how, how, I thought you were a Christian. It's like, I, I am, but I just sinned against you. Like, it, you know? That's when people start saying, I'm not perfect. I'm gonna, I mean, we know, right? I, I, I try not to say I'm not perfect ever, because I, I, if, if I ever say I'm not perfect, just look at my wife's face when you see it. She'd be like, we know. <laughs> we're going to sin against each other. And one of the reasons why I think God allows that to happen is to test if we're going to imitate his forgiveness. If you never had anyone offend you, then you wouldn't even know if you're willing to forgive people. Everyone thanks God when it's good, but when it's challenging, do you really believe that will come out in what we do? And also know that because the real and the fake often join together in the church. Listen, I'm a pastor, but I don't have special insight to know who's really a Christian in this audience and who's not. Who's really a Christian watching on the camera and who's not. I can tell by some things because you can judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. Sure. I know that I would, I'd be hard-pressed to think there's someone in this room who professes to believe that is not really living for the Lord. And so as we mingle together, there are going to be times people sin against us and then they don't ask for forgiveness or we sin against them and they hold on to bitterness and we're confused. And you know what? Sometimes some people have a form of godliness and deny his power and they're comfortable with it. They've done it so long, they don't even know what real, genuine faith is. Christianity, listen, I don't, when I say this, I'm not trying to be, it doesn't matter if you like my teaching. Thank you that you do, that you come back. Thank you that you give, but that doesn't matter. What matters is when you stand before the Lord, he's not going to say, how well did you like Kurt's teaching? It's how well did you obey what I told you from my word, whether it came from me, someone else, your own interactions with the scriptures. If we are bitter, and some of us can be proud about the sins that we have. We can be proud about them as if like somehow like we're... <laughs> Faith in God is not doing God a favor, right? We don't do God like, oh, I read my Bible today, you know, like, and listen, God, God's not like, it's not like he's like, oh, no, please read, pray, like I'm here, hey. No, it doesn't work like that, right? Holding to a form of godliness but denying his power is a dangerous reality. But then you're going to interact with people who actually do that. So do not excuse yourself from the obedience 
of forgiveness because others have. One of the ways I failed as a believer early in my Christian life and even at times in my marriage was I didn't want to ask for forgiveness unless my wife did. And I would be self-righteously judging her because I thought maybe she started this conflict. I didn't even take into account that I participated in it. Or maybe I did something and hurt her and assumed that she should just get over it quickly. I failed miserably at, at times of that. Sinned against others in the church and others sinned against me. And I've interacted with people who it's clear. You just are so surprised that I spoke with a harsh tone to you that now you're unwilling to forgive. It's like, okay, that's on you. We cannot excuse ourselves from the obedience of forgiveness because others do. We cannot. This is why Romans 12, 18 is a wonderful passage. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Forgiveness is an ethical command of Jesus. We must remember this. Forgiveness is a form of godliness. When we forgive others, it means we actually understand the gospel. When you don't forgive others, you don't understand the gospel because the foundation of Christianity is that we're forgiven because he took our penalty that we deserve on the cross. The second verse in this that I think we need to pay attention to that I think is equally dangerous and equally pervasive just in general. Verse 7, he says this, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Man, oh man. I don't know if, Mike, you would agree with this, but I would say in my tenure, I've been a pastor here 13 years and have been in ministry for 17 years. I would say I've seen more of this than almost anything else in my tenure. Always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Here's what a commentator says about this verse. It says this. Desire to listen to, people, to people's advice, always learning, but their minds have become so fickle and warped that they have become incapable of acknowledging the truth. Their main quest is for sensational rather than serious information. And consequently, they fall in easy prey to pseudo-Christian teachers. Translation. Is that people like to be entertained. They like to hear. So you may like, oh, Kirk cracks jokes and he does this and he does that. You, you may, or some other preacher, you may like to be entertained, but when it comes time to living for it, that's when you, uh, I, I need to, looking for something new. This always learning is essentially saying a person is always looking for something new to believe. Looking for something new. I want something new to believe. And this is a pervasive thing. As a matter of fact, our culture calls it new age, right? Well, what's old age? New age is just like a new way of thinking. 
a new philosophy, a new way to see Jesus, a new way to see morality, a new way. And we, we live in this culture where all the, everything's about new. The new iPhone, the new, now if you get the new iPhone, that's glorifying to God, I think, honestly, but we can talk about that later. You can rebuke me later. A new car, a new this, everything is about new. Do you know in the Bible, in the New Testament, I believe what I'm about to say is true. I looked as much as I can. So if I'm off, then I may be off by one. But I think what I'm about to say is fundamentally true in the New Testament. That there is only one new command that Jesus gave in the New Testament. The rest of the time when Jesus taught, he wasn't teaching new. Now, people thought it was a new teaching, right? Is this a, this is a new teaching? Jesus said, look, I'm not, I'm not coming to abolish the Mosaic law. I'm coming to clarify it. So you have heard it was said that if you, if you commit murder, he said, if you're angry in your heart, that's murder. He came to clarify how sinful sin really is. But Jesus only gave one new command. Everything else he said was, this is how you live. This is, he was undoing what the Pharisees, well, the Pharisees gave a lot of new commands. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do this on the Sabbath. You can, on the Sabbath, they had 637 laws that they couldn't do. They could not do. I mean, I, you, I mean, I, you couldn't even take a deep breath on the Sabbath around these dudes. It was, it was breaking the Sabbath. That's work, brother. <laughs> Holding your breath until sunrise. No wonder the, the, no wonder life expectancy was so short in Jerusalem back then. Jesus gives one new command. That's it. And he says this in John 13. It's one of our values. He says, I, a new, I give you a new command. And I think he said it's a new command because it's the only time he gave a new command. So he wanted it to be clear that what I'm about to say is newer than what you're used to hearing. Everything else was, I'm, I'm reinterpreting what you've understood, but this one is a new command and here it is. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. That's a new command. These men were married. They had families. They understood what love is. But Jesus said, no, no, no. This love is different. It has to be the way that I've loved you. Now, we've talked about this already in previous sermons in this series. So I'm not going to go back to that. But this is it. There were no new ethics in Jesus' day. And there are no new ethics in ours. What's new is the circumstances that we apply truth to. But we're not looking for new truth. Jesus only gave one new command and he's God. He gave one new command. The rest of it is, no, no, no. Live what you already know to be true. When one of the scribes walked up to Jesus in the Good Samaritan story in Luke 10, and he said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God, love your Father. He said, how do you understand it? He, Jesus asked him, how do you interpret it? Because the issue isn't like a new thing. You know when they said, show us a sign, right? They always wanted a sign, but they wanted something new. Show us something new so that we know that you, Jesus said, I'm not giving you no new sign. I'm not giving a sign. The sign that you're going to give is the sign of Jonah. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. They want something new. Prove it to us because it, it has to be new for it to be right, and that's just not true. 
This always learning means I don't accept what I've already learned. So I need something new. I need something new. Oh, this isn't working. I know that verse. You ain't doing that verse, right? There have been times that people have given me a verse because I'm struggling. I'm like, man, I know. I've memorized this verse. So what? I'm not living the verse. The newness comes from applying the verse in this particular circumstance. But I don't need some new level of morality. And this is a culture we live in. Everything has to be new. So I need to think about this needs to be new. This needs to be new. And everything needs to be new. That's new age. No. What we're after is old truth applied in new circumstances. Let me give you an example that all of us believe this to be true in most situations. You go to the hospital and you find out you have a serious ailment and it requires a significant surgery. And they say, we have two doctors that can do this surgery. One doctor has been doing this for 20 years and has a 98% success rate. And we have a new doctor that just graduated. You'd be his first one. Which one would you choose? <laughs> Has to you if you want to try the new doctor. I'm not. The doctor that's been here 20 years, let him do it. There was a show back in the, back in the day called Doogie Howser. And it was about this 16-year-old kid who was, like, brilliant and was a doctor. And he'd walk into, like, emergency rooms and people would be like, who is that? And they'd be like, that's Dr. Hauser. He'd be like, nah, he's not operating on my... There's one episode, that dude's not operating on my wife, he's a kid. And it's like, yeah, but he's brilliant. He, I don't care if he graduated at 16 from college. He's too new, he's too young, he can't do this. And obviously he overcame that adversity. Many of us in most situations would not require something new. We want the old truth. We want something that has been consistent. We want something that has been faithful because when things are new, they haven't been tested yet. You want tested truth. Jesus, the Bible, is tested truth. We don't have to find some new way to see things. And that's one of the challenges that we're facing today. We live in a society, even among Christians, where so many things are new. I have new views on what sin is and what it isn't. I have new views on it. Listen, there are three things that we have to all believe. Three things we must agree with. One, that Jesus is Lord. That's ontological. So it's ontological. Jesus is Lord. Soteriological. Salvation. That he died on the cross and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of our sins. So it's ontological, soteriological, and ethical. That we must obey his commandments. And not just what he actually said. We're not red-letter Christians. But all of the scripture. We obey it. Second Peter 3, Paul said, Peter said, Second Peter 3, Paul said, some of, some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. But people twist them as they do the other scriptures, right? They understood that what they were writing were considered the scriptures on par with God because the spirit of God was in them. And they were chosen by Jesus to take what he taught them and to share it with the world. We must obey his commandments. So we have to agree on these things, that Jesus is Lord, that he died and rose from the dead, and we must obey him, which means we have to agree on what sin is. Because how do we know what we're obeying? When you look at the category of sin in the Bible, the wrath of God is coming because of those things. 
So if I change my, if I have a new perspective on sexuality, then I can no longer, first of all, I can't trust what the Bible says then. Because if sexuality and how we've understood it is wrong, then how do I know that bitterness is actually sinful? How do I know that anger and, and murder and all these things are actually sinful? If, if we understood, misunderstood this wrong, then we may have misunderstood every category of sin in the Bible. It all falls apart. We don't need a new view of morality. We need a true view of morality. Yeah. We don't need a new way to view Jesus. We need the same tested, tried and true truth. That's why God gave us a Bible that we just keep reading. And how many of us get inspired in fresh ways from reading the same book? You ever read a passage and be like, hold on. Mm -hmm. How have I never seen this before? I do it all the time when I'm studying. It's like, wait, hold up, man. Hold on, Lord. This, is, this can't be what they know. I'm always like, Lord, please make sure this is you because I don't want to get up there and say it. And then I think it sounds good and then I'm wrong. Because I don't want to lead anyone astray. We don't need new. That's new age. I'm not looking for anything new. Everyone's trying to tell you what you need to be, this newness. There's, there's all these lists of what you need to be. Need to, you know what's never on that list? A Berean. We need to be Bereans. Read the Bible and make sure, is this true? Where do you see this at? We don't need new views on obedience. We need true views. We don't deny forgiveness and hold on to bitterness at people and hold on to offenses because others do it too. So what? Third, big picture. Third thing we must believe. Sin is satanic. It's really satanic. Bitterness, unforgiveness is satanic. We don't want to have a form of godliness and deny its power. We don't want to keep learning, always listening for something new and never arrive at something that's true. It is a journey for everyone. I get it, no question. Christianity is a journey on some level, but there are some things that are not real complicated to believe. What makes them complicated is I just don't feel like doing it. But it's not real complicated. Jesus made it, when he said to the children, let the little children come to me, right? For such is the kingdom of heaven. For such as these. Like, it's not complicated. Like, my kids understand the gospel. They understand the truth. Our children can understand it. Now, now do they want to do it? <laughs> That's a different question. And same with us. Every time I say, most of our sins are willful, right? Most of them are just like, man, I'm tired. I'm this, I'm that. You just make excuses for it. At least maybe it's just me. And it's like, you know, I know what I'm doing. I know what the issue is. I'm just not in the mood to resist it right now. We don't need new truth. We just need true truth. When it's new, be skeptical. I'm not talking about new application. I'm talking about a new way to see. Nah, I don't think so. Third, final big picture, and then a couple of just brief uh, reminders. This is all renewing our minds. Third scene, Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees invited him over to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. 
And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who was touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with, with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much, because the one who has forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let me ask you a genuine question. How much have you been forgiven? How much have you been forgiven? It's a genuine question. I'm going to ask you to answer. The studio audience, we don't want them to participate in the same way. But how much have you been forgiven? Now, Jesus said this woman has been forgiven much. Does, do we get no indication from the scriptures that this was the most sinful woman in all of Israel? We get no indication that she was the most sinful woman, so of course she's been forgiven much. We also talked about this the week before last, is that what does forgiveness feel like? When you ask God for forgiveness, how do you, do you feel forgiven? What does it feel like? I have no idea what forgiveness feels like. So we know that it can't be a feeling that we connect to. So I would imagine that this woman, who's a human being just like us, she may, her faith that she's forgiven is more her belief and her understanding that she's been forgiven. It's not like people are treating her different, right? right. Simon was like, this woman's a sinner. They didn't see her different, but she knew. I believe he's God and he's forgiven me. Now, she may have felt different, but forgiveness from God doesn't have a feeling. She had to believe that she was forgiven, that she was aware of her sins. How much have you been forgiven? Because the connection that Jesus makes here is people who are forgiven little love little. The people who don't value how much they've been forgiven don't know how to do it to others. They don't appreciate it from God and they don't extend it to other people. So the question is, how much have you been forgiven? Do you genuinely appreciate the forgiveness that God says you have. You know, one of the strategies of the enemy, I truly believe this, is to make many of us doubt at times or consistently 
the reality of his forgiveness towards us. We are quietly not confident that we are forgiven as often as he says we are. We may think of our relationship with our parents or, or other close friends that haven't forgiven us and we think that how could God continue to forgive me so freely and so often and it just seems like well, the one thing you must remember about forgiveness from God is it is not free. And I always say this, and I'm going to say this hopefully till I die. Go back to the Garden of Gethsemane and read again Jesus' appeal to the Lord, his crying out to the Father, his sweat becoming drops of blood to take the wrath of God away from him. Because in that moment, the only time we see in Jesus' earthly ministry that he did not want to do what God commanded him to do. And that he actually prayed that God would take it away. And since Jesus always does the will of the Father, then the Father wanted Jesus to actually pray that so that we could see the reality of it. If for no other reason, the significance of what it cost for us to be forgiven. It was not free. It came at a cost, at some pain at suffering our forgiveness of other people is going to come at a cost with some pain and with some suffering forgiveness is not something that is easy and it's not something to take lightly it's going to hurt sometimes to forgive other people especially if they've sinned against you really really bad or they sin against you a lot. It's going to be difficult. If we're going to be like Jesus, then it's going to come with some degree of suffering. Because let's just be honest, some people we do not want to forgive. We want justice for them rather than mercy. But we never ask God to bring his justice on us. How much have you been forgiven? Really think about that question. Because if you don't think you've been forgiven much, then you won't forgive others much. And you won't love God that much. You ever try to share the gospel with someone and they're just like, hey, I'm a pretty good person. Like, I don't, you know, I'm a good person. I don't, I don't do all this stuff. They name a couple of things. I don't steal. I don't watch this. I don't do that. They name a couple of things as if like that's the measurement of good. Years ago, Andy Stanley wrote a book called How Good Is Good Enough, and I love that book. I don't, I don't follow everything he says, but that book, I was like, yeah, that's a good question. How good is good enough? What makes those, that standard of goodness the goodness to get you into heaven? How much have you been forgiven? Do you really understand the gravity of it and if not, remind yourself of what it took to be forgiven. Remind yourself that even your thinking that disagrees with God is satanic. Think about how much that happens in a day. Jeez. Jesus said, all right, let me make it simple. I'll give you two commands and that's it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These two, the law and the prophets, hang on both of these. 
You guys got those figured out? I don't. I don't know if I've ever done them. I don't know if I've ever done either of them. So I'm constantly disobeying God. So there's a perpetual, constant forgiveness of my sin. In his people, there must be a perpetual, constant willingness to forgive when we're sinned against. Because you imitate God more by doing that than you ever do by having a quiet time. couple quick thoughts. Lastly, how do we grow in this? So these three big picture things, three, four bullet points. I'm going to say very quickly. How do we grow? How do we renew our minds? Again, this is all about renewing your mind. The secret to Christianity is not something new. It's reminding myself of what's true and then, and then creating actions of obedience from that truth. That's how we grow as believers. There's no real cut. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some things that the Lord takes away and it doesn't struggle with it anymore, but most of it is like, okay, I need to remind myself of what's true and then obey from that truth. And sometimes I need to obey from that truth instead of how I feel. Sometimes our feelings betray us. My feelings betray me often. They lead me to judge people and do all this stuff and it's just not, ah. Then you're just off, you're just wrong. It's like I must believe what this Bible, what this verse says, and then I want to obey from this truth. There's no, like, shortcut. If you got a big lawn, you just got to cut that grass. Or you, like me, you hire somebody else to do it and enjoy a nice, cold, sweet tea while they do it. No sweet teas in sanctification, though. It's just growth. So a couple things to remind yourself. Remember what we said. Remember what sin really is, what bitterness really is. It's satanic. It's not just a struggle. Yes, it's a struggle in the sense that we're trying to obey God. But don't just minimize everything to I'm just, it's a struggle. It's satanic. It's demonic from God's perspective. It's demonic. Number two, something we said a couple sermons ago. Remember that there's a difference between actual sin and your preferences, right? Some stuff that we're bitter at, has the person didn't even sin against us. They may have disappointed us. They may have changed plans at the last minute. They may have done something, but not everything is sinful, right? We have unmet expectations that we're largely responding to. Remember James 4.1. What does he say? What is the source of wars and fights among you, right? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? Notice he didn't say Jesus in Matthew 15. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. They never said that these external things are the reasons why you said, you make me so angry. No, no, no. What you expected them to not do or do, they did, and that's revealing how angry you are because you hold on to that expectation tightly. We all do this. The issue may be my unmet expectations. It may be. It doesn't mean that people don't genuinely sin, but it may be. So here's a question to ask. Is this a sin issue? Is this even a sin issue that I'm offended? And then the second, there's two questions, right back to back. Is this a sin issue? And then why am I bothered by this? Why does this bother me? Can I clearly say this is a sin issue? And then if, okay, then why am I bothered by this? 
And sometimes it's, I just didn't like it. I didn't like it. Or I, had, I, I was hoping that it, you're going to find out it's an expectation that you had. So remember what sin really is, what bitterness really is. It's satanic. Remember that there are differences between sin and your preferences, right? Our preferences trip us up a lot. My preferences are really high, so if you break them, that's sin against me. But is it sin against God, though? Remember that God is overlooking your offenses even though you continue to do them. God is overlooking our offenses even though we continue to do them. He sent his son to die knowing the people that actually he's dying for, they're going to believe in him, are still going to sin, some of them significantly after that. We're going to sin against each other. When Jesus said to Peter, how many, when Peter said, how many times do I forgive? And seven, and Jesus said 70 times seven. You know why Jesus said that? Because that's how God forgives us. The fact that Jesus became a human being means that God doesn't call us to do things that he hasn't done himself. Now, we don't imitate Jesus in everything. I mean, if you want to walk on water in that crocodile swamp, then knock yourself out. Can I have your new iPhone if you decide to do it? No, Jesus says 70 times 7 in Matthew 18 because that's how much we're forgiven. It's, like, it's not a number that you calculate. It's, it's, it's a posture of the heart. He says, I just, I'm willing to forgive people. And when it's difficult to forgive them and it's difficult to have relationships, as far as it depends on me, live peacefully with all. I can't make you forgive me and I can't, I can make myself. I, can, I, I, can't have, I cannot change the way you feel about me or how you relate to me. I can only change how I relate to you. God is overlooking our offenses even though we continue to do them. So we have to be careful to demand that we'll forgive people unless they keep doing the same thing. Because you and I do the same thing all the time to God. And he forgives consistently. Lastly, fourth thing, fourth specific that goes back to what we said. And this is a big one. Remember that rebuking someone is redemptive, not argumentative. Rebuking someone is redemptive, correcting someone. The reason why most conflicts between people don't work, especially close relationships like family, is because I'm correcting you because I'm offended. You've offended me, and I'm correcting you in, in, in that vein. When you look at, remember what Jesus said. Let's go back to last, uh, last week. Remember what Jesus said this. Be on your guard, Luke 17, 3 and 4. He said this, be on your guard. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him, right? We don't correct people because they made us angry. We correct people so that they can repent and then we can forgive them. That's all part of the process. See, when we correct people because they made us angry and that's where it stops, then even when they're forgiven, you might not even believe they're serious. Well, I don't believe you. Right. You ever just thought, this person's not sorry enough. What are they supposed to do? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What you, I mean, what you want me to do, man? Forgive me. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not as emotional as you are about it. I'm the one that did it. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> you know, please forgive me. I mean, seriously, I know it was wrong, it was sinful. Okay, fine, that's not good enough. Well, if it's good enough to God, it's good enough. For me. I mean, I don't, unless it's some kind of more action need to be taken, then we have to remember that when we correct people and we rebuke them, it's not because they made us angry. Like on one level, who cares if you got pissed off? So what? That's not the most important thing. What that person needs is to be adjusted because they're out of pocket with the Lord. Then you forgive them so that you're not out of pocket with the Lord. That's the purpose of correction and rebuke. But what we do is we make it about, I'm offended, I'm telling it like it is. Let me, let me exercise my First Amendment rights right now. Free speech. Let me tell you how it is. Listen, free speech is an American law. It's not a biblical one. Amen. James 3 says, tame the tongue. Yep. Ephesians 4 says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Ain't no such thing as free speech for us. Not in that vein, at least. No, listen. When we rebuke people, and I failed at this. I, I'm, I, I don't know. I don't, the Lord is wild. I was like, Lord, why didn't you tell me this a long time ago? Why wasn't this clear to me a long time ago? I feel like I'm just learning stuff like, man, dang, because I just, you get offended and you correct people out of offense. Yep. Like we said last week, listen, whatever your weakest point is, whatever's the hardest thing for you to get over, apply that. Think of whatever that person is doing, that's their thing. Everyone, ha everyone in this room has some areas where it's just hard for us to make progress. Every one of us. And we need to relate to people based on our weaknesses, not our strengths. Because often, people will sin in ways that we just aren't even tempted to. It doesn't mean we're better. It just means that's not our temptation. That's why you hear that phrase, there go I before the grace of God, right? It's not our temptation. I just don't struggle with that. But that doesn't mean I can be self-righteous towards people who do, and I've done that. Yeah. I've just been offended. Like, like, I've been offended that people even struggle with certain things. And it's like, man, have you seen yourself, fam? Like, look in the mirror and say, hey, I'm a piece of work. And the Lord has been merciful to forgive me. And I want to imitate that. Don't rebuke people unless it's going to be redemptive. It can't just be argumentative. It just can't be argumentative. It's just not what it's about. It's correction to impart forgiveness, not a judgment of someone's weakness. A lot of information, intentional. It's a resource. You didn't have to catch everything now. Whatever stuck out to you now, may the Lord use it. You can always go back. All right? Let's pray. Fathers, we conclude this topical series on forgiveness and bitterness. Thank you for what I believe to be the genuine work you're doing in each of us. This is not an easy thing. I know for me, I've at times in my life not, not seen the significance of it and have looked at it more from just my own struggle at times than what it really is biblically from you. I've been one who's denied the power, maybe the form of godliness, the appearance of godliness. Well, if there are others who can relate to that, I pray that you would instill in each of us a real commitment to honor you, to see our sin for what it is, and not to be overwhelmed by it. We don't need to be morbid introspection. We're forgiven by your grace, but help us to not be desensitized to the word sin or to our sin because we know that we're forgiven. 
Help us to be people who do not deny the power of the gospel, the, the power to change and to grow and to resist temptation. Help us to be people that are not constantly looking for something new, but grabbing hold of what's true. Lord, we are confident that you who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. Help us to be people who persevere, even in the seasons where it's difficult, whether it's our own sin or circumstances that reveal our sin. Help us to be people that persevere and not give up. So many people give up and look for something new. Help us to persevere in what we know to be true. For your glory and our good, in your name we pray. Amen.